Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm excited for the day. I'm going to start with my friend David Wheaton. We have been studying the book of Genesis. I think we've been at it for about a year, and we're already to chapter 50. So that's what we're going to do today. So the big question I have is what are David and I going to do next? So that's going to hopefully get answered in this half hour as well. David is the host of The Christian Worldview. You can always head to thechristianworldview.org. He's got an exceptional program that airs on uh, Saturdays around the country, and you should know about it, and you should listen to it, and you should uh, go to thechristianworldview.org. David, welcome. Good afternoon, Bill. Yeah. Good to be with you today for Chapter 50, the oh, final boy. chapter of Genesis. Are we wrapping up today? Is this it? This is it for Genesis okay. today, yeah. Okay. Well, what are we doing <laughs> What are we doing next? <laughs> I'm, I'm too excited. To, i got to ask. Well, I, I think, uh, as we'll see later in the, our conversation today, the you, you turn the page from Genesis to Exodus, and there's there's really a <laughs> a, a, a good connection. So Perfect. I, I don't know. I th- yeah. think it's hard to end at Genesis and not go into the Exodus <laughs> on how they get out of Egypt. I think I think you're spot on. All right, let's uh, just for listeners review what we talked about last time. Yeah, well, we went over Genesis 49 last time, and this is where Jacob, the, the third patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, is nearing the end of his life. He's he's in Egypt now through that whole amazing circumstances of events. You know, Joseph, his son, gets sold into slavery by his brothers. Eventually, they come down to the land because there's a great famine, and uh, the, Joseph reveals himself to him. So all the, all the, the, the Jewish people at that time, when there wasn't many, it was about 70, moved down to Egypt— but then about 17 years later, it's time for, for Jacob, the patriarch, to die. But before he dies, he puts a, gives a blessing to his, each of his 12 sons, who are the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's interesting, these blessings he gives, we talked about last time, it's, it said uh, uh, in chapter 49, verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father Jacob said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. In other words, that word appropriate is that all of them don't really seem like blessings. Like, for instance, to his firstborn son, he said, uh, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrollable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. And then, so basically for Reuben, because Reuben had been involved in really terrible sexual sin with one of his father's wives, uh, there, there wasn't really a blessing per se, maybe a little bit in the early part of that passage, but really there was going to be consequence for him and his offspring because of the decisions that he had made. Contrary to that, you know, conversely to that, you see Judah, another son, who did some really sinful things in his life, Bill, but there was a, a rep- apparently a repentant spirit about him. He, he knew he did wrong. He was the one who was advocating, um, you know, when the brothers were in big trouble with Joseph, he was saying, take me, I'll be your slave, you know, whatever. I, know I, can't, I can't let my father down. In other words, he had really changed. 
through this process. And of course, Christ himself came from the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So there was a great blessing for Judah. And I think that the, the relevance here for all of us listening today is that the choices we make in our life do impact our lives and other people's lives, our, our family members' lives, for better or for worse. We don't just live into ourselves. And God wants us to live a life that ultimately glorifies Him, honors Him. And when we do that, that really actually brings us the greatest joy as well. Sometimes that's counterintuitive. We think, oh, going God's way, boring, being a Christian, I want to live my life, I want to do what I want to do. There's not joy in that. There, there's a the temporary pleasures of sin are never worth the uh, enduring consequences of that sin. And so too many people today, and it's easy for any of us to do, make decisions on what feels right at the time. Uh, you, you take some a young person, a 21-year-old person decides to, to live with their girlfriend, and they have a child, they get into a bad relationship. Um, even if that person kind of repents and believes the gospel later on and comes to saving faith, the life turns around, you can never get away from the consequences of our bad decisions. And I, th I think that's important to think about before we make decisions, realize what's the end of the road? Where, where is this taking me? Uh, is this taking me the wrong way in life that this is going to follow me the rest of my life? Because you can see in these blessings with Jacob's sons that many of the things they did earlier in the life were brought up later in the life that were, weren't going to give them the blessing they could have had. Very interesting when it, like you pointed out in verse 28, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. That's a mm -hmm. powerful part of that verse. So thank you for it that, is. and I enjoyed that recap. Let's move on to Genesis 50, and let's talk about mourning. Why jo Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. There's a lot of weeping and mourning. Why is mourning yes. important? Well, th this whole last chapter of Genesis, you know, both Jacob the father, and Joseph, at the end of the chapter, they both die in the same chapter. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so th this this chapter is full of, of death and mourning over two of the prominent characters that have taken up, I don't know, the last quarter of, of Genesis. So Jacob uh, dies after, you know, blessing, so-called blessing, his 12 sons, and then he dies, and immediately, like you said, Joseph, the son, falls on his father's face. He's so distraught over it. And it says they embalmed him. He didn't want to be buried in Egypt. They wanted him to be taken back up to um, the land of Canaan. Uh, and the Egyptians, it said, wept for him 70 days. That's seven zero. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a long time to mourn over a man that wasn't even an Egyptian. And then what happens is, Bill, is that not only do Joseph and his brothers, they're going to take Jacob, their father, his body, back up to Canaan to, to bury him. He wanted to be buried with, remember, his grandfather Abraham and Sarah and his father Isaac and, and, and his wife Rebecca and one of his wives, Leah. They all wanted to be together because that was the promised land. They, they, they knew that promise was coming, and so Jacob was very intent on being buried back there. So all of Joseph and his brothers, big contingent of them, and many Egyptians went up together, this huge group of people a great company of people, when it says later in this chapter that when they came to the threshing floor, which is beyond the Jordan, back in Canaan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And Joseph observed seven days of mourning for his father. And, you know, there there's an importance in mourning, Bill. I, I think our society too often does not want to grieve or to mourn. And, and now we understand that because mourning is, and grieving is painful. 
It's it's not enjoyable, but it is important. And, and the sobriety that goes along with mourning, and they gave great respect to Jacob. They mourned for him for many days. They set aside with their regular patterns of life, and they mourned for the loss of Jacob. Even though he was going to heaven, it was a great loss on earth. And the mourning makes us focus on the important things of life, and not all the distractions that take up our time and our interest or the temporal things of life. In this time of mourning and grief— can be a time, should be a time, where we draw closer to God, rely on Him, get His perspective, allow Him to comfort us. And so, on the flip side, God doesn't want us to stay in mourning forever, of course, but He does provide sanctification and growth during these times of mourning, but we have to be willing to go through them. Mm-hmm. So the brothers, when the dad died, started to get a little bit nervous, because what if Joseph bears a grudge and wants revenge? Ooh, yeah, exactly. So, you know, Jacob uh, is now dead. Now the brothers are thinking, well, now our father's dead. He's the last thing keeping us between our brother, who is, you know, one of the top officials in Egypt. Now he's going to exact revenge on us. And it says in Genesis 50, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? And they did do a lot of wrong to him. I mean, they hated him. He was the favored son. They sold him into slavery. Their own younger brother, who was about 17 year old, years old at the time, it was horrible. And so, but the, the, the brothers were worried that, you know, all, they lose faith in Joseph. They, they were gaining faith in him, but now they thought, you know, now that our father's out of the way, they, they just don't know what's going to happen here. But the interesting thing in this passage, if you read in verse 16 here of Genesis 50, it says, so they sent a message to Joseph. This is the brother saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And then his brothers came to him and said, Behold, we are your servants. This is very interesting here, because the way they apologize, so to speak. It was more than that. They really asked forgiveness. They, they, so many times a day when, when we do something wrong, or you see someone in the public eye do something wrong, what do they say, Bill? Oh, I'm sorry. Or if I have offended anyone. All right. You always hear that all the time, right? Yes. They don't do this. They say, please forgive me. They ask forgiveness. They also say, we have done wrong. And those are really the two things, mm. you know, I have done wrong to offend you, will you forgive me? Those, that, that's a truly repentant heart, and that's what the brothers did uh, to Joseph, their brother. And then I'm very curious as to what Joseph's response would be, but I think I'm going to first take a break, and when we come back, we'll get Joseph's response to his brothers. David Wheaton is my guest as we continue our study on the book of Genesis, which, believe it or not, wraps up today. And the good news is, I think David and I are moving on to Exodus after that. You can always head to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David. We'll be right back.
back with David Wheaton. We continue our study in Genesis. We're all the way up to chapter 50. Can you believe it? We're here. All right, David, let's go to the response that uh, Joseph had for his brothers. Yeah, well, if the brothers give the model for how we're to ask forgiveness, I have sinned against you, I have done wrong against you, please forgive me. If that's the model uh, for asking forgiveness, not if I have offended anyone mm-hmm. here so often today. And there's no they, buts in they, there. Right. They, they just say, well, I have sinned against you, please forgive me. Uh, Joseph gives the model for how to forgive someone. It's, 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 it's a perfect model here for us today. Joseph says to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, here, this is the, the really captures the book of Genesis so well. You meant evil against me when you sold me into slavery, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many peoples alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So again, just the model for how to forgive someone. I mean, the spiritual maturity spiritual understanding. He says, am I in God's place? Joseph knows that sin is ultimately really not against him. It's ultimately against God, the lawgiver. And he is not the one. Joseph is not the one uh, to exact punishment. God is. Joseph is not their judge. He is called to forgive them. And it's the same thing with us. We have no right to hold offense, to hold grudges, to exact revenge against those who sin against us. If God forgives us, when we have so greatly offended him and we don't forgive others, I mean, who are we to hold an offense against someone? I mean, think of infinitely more Christ forgave us by paying the penalty we deserve to pay for our great sins against God. And God forgives us. And so who are we to hold a grudge or hold someone uh, when someone asks us forgiveness? The Bible says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And, and Joseph knew this. It wasn't his—he didn't want to take ownership of of being his brother's judge. Matter of fact, he went beyond that. He goes beyond forgiveness to actually showing them grace, unmerited favor. He comforts them. He speaks kindly to them. And so this model of the brothers asking forgiveness and then Joseph's granting of forgiveness is what all of us need to do in in the midst of any offense that we encounter. Yeah, it's a powerful model for sure, David. And like you had mentioned, it's just uh, there was no nothing padded. It was, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And they just and left it at that. And that's, uh, a, that's a great apology. Oftentimes you hear, it yeah, is. I'm sorry, but, you know, this or that happened, and here's the reason it happened. But this is just a nice, clean apology. It is. And Joseph doesn't bring up the fact, yeah, I, I do forgive you, but you really shouldn't have sold me into slavery. You should have learned. You know, <laughs> right. He doesn't do that. No, he, 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 he was weeping, actually, when they I know. asked him forgiveness. It's beautiful. So, yeah. Yeah. So, what um, what what does Joseph command at his own death? Yeah, well, right here at the end of the book of Genesis, now it's time for Joseph to die. Some some time goes by after his father is gone, and the, the book of Genesis ends with, with with Joseph dying. And he says, "I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you." He says to his brothers, "And bring you up from this land of Egypt to the land which He promised." on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And again, this is the thread that runs through the whole book, you know, that God has made a promise to our people, the Jewish people, land, seed, offspring, nation, and blessing. Uh, and, and Abraham believed it, Isaac believed it, Jacob believes it, now Joseph it, it believes God's going to do this. And now, I, I look this up, that Joseph was age 110 when he died. 
And this was around the year 1804 BC. So it's about 3,800 years ago. And 300 years after Joseph's death would be the birth of Moses, which would kind of start the process of the, the Exodus. And so his brothers, who he's telling this to, that they, you know, God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land. This wasn't going to happen in their lifetime. There, there's another promise here that they're not going to see fulfilled. And it, it goes to us as well. These brothers, Joseph, they had faith in God, even though what God had promised did not transpire in their life. And as a matter of fact, it was going to come to their great, 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 great grandchildren uh, who this promise was going to come when Moses obviously was born and then the whole exodus out of out of uh, Egypt, which we'll get into next. So a lot of times we are called to have faith in things, to trust God. God faith is always God's test for us. Are we going to believe God at his word? And this is the great example in Genesis of the three patriarchs and, of course, Joseph as well. Mm-hmm. Fantastic uh, study, David. I'm real curious as to what you consider to be some of the most important takeaways from Genesis. Yeah, let's just summarize the whole book in one minute. No. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> All 50 chapters. Well, I, th- I think there's a few things that I thought about uh, with regards to the big takeaways. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, I think forms the all-important foundation for the rest of Scripture. Um, If you wrongly interpret Genesis, especially the first, let's say, 10 or 11 chapters of Genesis, you're going to misinterpret the rest of the Bible as well. I mean, things like Bill, I mean, just so many things we've discussed over this, over a year of doing this, like who God is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's no no proof that the Bible tries to make that God exists. It's just, it's a self-evident. I mean, there's, there's no other explanation for how everything got here but God. So who God is, how he created everything from nothing simply by just speaking it into existence. Talks about the age of the earth. We talked about it early on, the seven day, or the six days of creation, how God created only two sexes, male and female. Well, that's so challenged today. Many, many thousands of years later, we're challenging God's institutions from the very beginning, how God designed marriage to be one man and one woman from the very beginning. We see the introduction of sin and how that corrupted the world. That explains what goes on in 2021 America and the rest of the world and how that brought death on the world. We see that all around us all the time. Who Satan is, the adversary of God and of the believer. God's judgment for sin in the, in the flood during Noah's day. How nations and languages reform. And most importantly, that there would be, right from the early parts of Genesis, in Genesis 3, I think it is, or 4, how there was going to be a promise of a coming Redeemer. Man and Adam and Eve sinned, but right away God killed an animal, covered them with skins, and there was this promise that God was going to send a Redeemer someday, right in the early part of the Bible. So that's that's one big thing. It's an important foundation for the rest of, of Scripture. Another big theme, theme is God's covenant with Abraham and the Jewish people for land, seed, and blessing that we've talked about earlier today. Uh, in that, by Abraham believing that, you remember that verse in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God mm-hmm. and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That is the basis for how one can be saved and be made right with God today. We're saved not by our good works or trusting in our going to church or being baptized or taking communion or all the religious deeds we tend to look to to say, oh, that makes me right with God. That wasn't how Abraham was saved. He was saved simply by believing God at his word. And we're, we're saved the same way today believing what God has revealed about who his son is and what his son did on the cross, that he 
paid the penalty we deserve to pay. He paid our sin. He canceled the debt of sin, which we have against God, that which which God has against us because we've sinned so much against Him. And so that was just a that's a such an important takeaway. And the last one I'd say, Bill, is that how God orchestrates the events of life to accomplish His will. We see lots of circuitous events and. You know, Abraham is going out of the promised land, and Isaac and Jacob, they're going in and out of it in different journeys they go on, but all and, and all the sinful things done by the, the prominent characters in Genesis. But the, the, the thread is that God is constantly bringing about, about his plans and purposes in the midst of, of it all. So God is sovereign, and how in our own life, sometimes we think things are out of control— but God is working things together for our good and His glory in the midst of our very kind of convoluted, sinful world. He's able to do that. Mm. So powerful. David, I remember going back to the very start of this study, we were in Genesis chapter 1, and you were starting off with the very the very first verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, period. And you had a wonderful exposition on that verse alone of all the things that was going on in that one verse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish I could remember the the five or six things. It, yeah, it, it, that is that is probably the most important verse in the Bible, um, because it, it it basically says there's a God. There's and, a God, and, you know. And, yeah, the, and and He has spoken, and He's living, and He's a personal God, you know. And then when you know that, that changes everything. Yep. Because then all of a sudden, our 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 duty, our responsibility is, well, what does this God expect from me? And, and that's what the revealing of the rest of the of Scripture is. And even though we've sinned against him, it's all the thread is all leading toward the coming of his Son in the New Testament uh, to to be the, the, the Redeemer, to redeem us uh, from our—the wages of sin is death. He, he came to redeem us from that, to offer redemption. And that's mm-hmm. what the, the, the thread going through the entire Bible is, and it all starts in Genesis 1 and verse 1. Yeah. There's, like, identity, there's action, there's time, there's space. Yeah. That's exactly right. All of yep. that in in one. And I remember, boy, when we started that, I thought, I'm going to love this study, because how do you get that much out of one verse? Yeah, I I, I wasn't original to that. I, I Someone had taught me that, yeah, or I heard it along the way. Yeah. But it is amazing. In the beginning was time, and then God was force, uh, created was action, the heavens and the earth, space and matter. I, I, I'm probably getting a little bit wrong, but That's I could okay. go back and look. But it was basically something like that, that everything in—, in Everything that we know in our universe is contained in that first verse of the Bible. <laughs> yeah, so good. David, thank you for the study. It's been fantastic. I've loved it, and I'm excited to move ahead and consider the book of Exodus. Is that what we can look forward to? We, we can look forward to that. And I'll tell you, just doing this whole study has been incredible for me just personally, Bill, Yeah. going through this you know, in all of our interviews. So it's been a great blessing yeah. to me as well. And we're going to put up the entire series on a series page so all of our listeners can go there and just binge listen. One episode right after the other if they like. That'll be that great. That sounds very good. Okay. Thanks, David. Have a great rest of the day. You too, Bill. Thank you. you David Wheaton has been my guest. TheChristianWorldview.org is where to go learn more about David. And we will uh, shortly get that series page up, and every one of the episodes on the teaching of Genesis with David will be there. You can just listen to one right after the other. We'll take a short break. Marshall Siegel will be joining me next. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's 
day here in the Twin Cities. Uh, my guest, Marshall Siegel, walked in, and he was just saying, boy, is it nice out. It was so beautiful coming over here today, and he was bragging up the weather, and I uh, had to agree. And it is a spectacular day here in Minneapolis. And uh, Marshall is a, a staff writer over at DesiringGod.org, and he's uh, written a number of articles on the bitter fruit of fearing man. Marshall, welcome. Thanks. Thank you for having me. It is yeah. a gorgeous day. I'm, my wife's from California so. and endures our long winters, <laughs> yeah. but we take every sunny day. We, we don't take a single sunny day for granted yeah. in our home. Yeah. So let's talk about fearing man. And you say how to recognize a subtle sin. I want to hear more about that. Yeah, the fear of man. So this, this really came onto my radar a year and a half ago as we were studying in my small group, the Gospel of John. We got to chapter 5, and Jesus is talking to some of the religious leaders, the, the kind of people that really despised him, opposed him, tried to undermine him, and then eventually uh, con, uh, conspired to kill him. And Jesus is talking to them, and he says this thing that just landed on me so heavily in the moment. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How can you believe, he says, when you um, pursue glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Wow. So it landed on me because I think I know what he's saying there is you cannot believe me because you receive glory from one another. In, in, in other words, because you fear man, because you're looking for the glory, the praise, the approval of man. You cannot believe me. You cannot see me for who I am. And so I could see how that worked itself out in the Gospels, in the Pharisees and the religious leaders. But what was convicting was just seeing how true that's still for us. If we are led along, enslaved to the fear of man, if we're always living for the praise and approval of others, then we cannot see Jesus for who he really is. We're going to be more and more blind and dull to his glory and beauty. So I think it's a massive, I mean, the scripture has so much to say about it. I'm sure we'll only, we'll only scratch the surface today, but the more that you have eyes for it, the more you can see it in yourself and the more you can see it in God's word. Mm-hmm. You also connected uh, Jeremiah 17, one of my favorite chapters in Jeremiah about uh, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And it's interesting because it, the, the heart is the heart has trust. It's either going to be placed in man or it's going to be placed in God. We both have, you know, everyone has trust. It's where you where you're placing it. Yeah, that that text is really helpful on multiple fronts. But the, the one that you identified is is uh, Ed Welch, who has an excellent book on this topic. It says when people are big and God is small. So if if you want a book that really uh, gets into these issues, that's an excellent one. He calls this the one you just mentioned the classic fear, fear of man text doesn't mention the fear of man by name, but it says, uh, just as you read, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. So I think the text is helpful first in understanding what is the fear of man. I was just working on that again today. So I've written all these articles <laughs> and I thought, man, the first thing he's going to ask me is how would you define the fear of man or what, uh, what, what is it? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this text helps us because he says, cursed is the man who trusts in man who makes flesh or man or people his strength. So there's a sense in which this fear of man, like you said, it, no one can serve two masters or no one can trust 
two masters. You either trust one or the other. The, the person who fears man, uh, ironically, trusts in man, looks to other people for their strength, their peace, uh, their sense of identity and purpose. Uh, but the man of God looks to God. Um, so I made an attempt at that fear of man definition. I, I, I'm saying the fear of man is our captivity to what others think or feel. Instead of saying or doing what we sense God calling us to do, sometimes he's very clear about that in his word. Other times we're just, we're just trying our best to discern what does love do, love for God and love for neighbor, what's that do? Instead of saying or doing what we sense God calling us to say or do, we say or do whatever we think will make other people happy. Mm. And we hear that, like so many other sins, we hear that and think, well, yeah, that's true of a lot of other people. It's like a lot of other sins. It's so much easier to see it in somebody else than it is to see it ourselves. But there'll be relationships, and all of us have these relationships, where you can start to see, no, 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 I'm, I'm being more driven here by what this other person thinks or what, how they feel than I am by what I think God wants me to, to say or do in this situation. So I think that Jeremiah 17, it's really good for, for starting to understand what the fear of man is. Mm-hmm. Can I quote an author right now? Yeah. All right. This author said, I see the fear of man most clearly in my own heart when it begins to suck the moisture out of my soul. That author is Marshall Siegel. Usually I don't quote the guy who's in the studio. <laughs> Usually I try to avoid that if possible, but I couldn't help myself. Well, thank you. And that was the other thing. So I said Jeremiah 17 does two good things for us. One is it helps us define it. The other one is that it helps us see the fruit of it. Um, there, there are some sins that you can define the temptation a little bit easier and see it ahead of time. I find with the fear of man, at least for me, I discerned it in myself more often in the wake of it than on the front end of it. And I think that's what Jeremiah 17 is helping us do. And that's what I'm trying to rephrase. I'm just trying to rephrase Jeremiah 17 when he says, so makes uh, cursed is the man who trusts in man whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert. Mm-hmm. And shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in parched places in the wilderness. That's making me thirsty. In an uninhabited salt land. Uh Now I'm even thirstier. The picture is so vivid, but that's where the fear of man leaves us. And it's one of the most helpful ways to distinguish the fear of man from love. And that's what makes the battle so hard at times. Because I think Satan makes us think that that when we are fearing man, that we're actually loving them, that we're thinking of their interests, that we're doing what, what would serve them best. But, but love isn't like this. This is what the fear of man feels like. It feels like you are running a marathon in the desert. Mm. Even more than that, because this is, uh, he says it feels like you're a shrub, so you're not running anywhere. You're just lodged in a desert and you're a shrub without any water. It says that you're, you live in these parched places, this uninhabited salt land. So I think that's one of the, the horrible and ironic things about the fear of man is that the more that we indulge it, the more alone we feel, the more isolated, the uninhabited land, he says in Jeremiah 17. So here we are trying to live for the approval of others, the praise of others. But ironically, as we let the fear of man have control of our hearts and lives— we feel more and more alone and we isolate ourselves uh, in part for protection because if we're really um, captive to the feelings and thoughts of others, then we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable 
to be hurt by them. And so we get further and further away. We put up more and more barriers between us and them. So yeah, the, the thing that you quoted there is just my effort to say, what does it feel like to be a shrub in the desert? And, and you can feel the moisture coming out of your soul when, when you allow the fear of man to dictate your relationships. Mm-hmm. Listener just jumped in with this. If we are in that desert and parched land, how do we change our allegiance to God so that we can reposition ourselves to be a tree next to a stream of water instead of all dried up? Mm, that's a great question. And it's exactly the right question. So it's just like every other sin. It's one thing to identify it and to say, I don't want to be captive to that. It's another thing to ask, how do I be free? That's why I right. prayed yeah. when I was on the way over. Is I, I don't want someone to just recognize this sin in themselves. I want them to see it and then cling to the promises of God and find freedom from it and then be, and then find that they're actually freed up to love people well, finally, for, for maybe the first time in some relationships. So the text, I, mean, I think Jeremiah 17, we can just keep reading. So maybe that's the most helpful thing to do. Blessed is the man, next verse, blessed is the man who's, who trusts in the, in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Now that's a very different picture. So this again has more to do with what does it produce than, than how to find it. But I think this is, if you feel that, that moisture being sucked out of your soul because of the fear of man, this is what you should want. You should want to be the kind of tree that's so, um, that's so nurtured by the living water that Jesus offers us that even when heat comes, even when the drought comes, the leaves of your soul remain green. Even when life, circumstances, trials, hardship, conflict, even when all that threatens to um, suck the moisture out of your life, instead, you're still bearing fruit. And I think the fruit of godliness, the, the fruit of the spirit, you're still bearing fruit even when trials come. So I think that's what it looks like. That's what we want it to look like. But to answer that person's question, the text I found most helpful personally, and it's in a surprising place, is in Isaiah 8, verses 12 uh, to 14. Just listen to this. I just think this is relevant all the time and maybe, maybe never more so than in the last year with all the turmoil in our nation Isaiah says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread and he will become a sanctuary. That's amazing. So the, the text is telling us the way out of the fear of man or the way out of any ungodly fear, because some people listening here have other fears that control their life that aren't fear of praise or approval or rejection. The fear or, or the way out of these fears, the way out of the fear of man is to fear God. Let him be your fear. It says even let him be your dread and he will become a sanctuary. So until God is the thing that we fear most in life, these other fears can get at us. But once he becomes our greatest fear, he can become our safest place. He becomes a place of refuge 
from danger, a haven from from wrath, because in when we're hidden in him, we're no longer worried about his condemnation anymore. He becomes a shelter in any storm. When he is big, and this is what Ed Welch is getting at, but when he is big and people are small, then he can become a safe place for us in these difficult relationships. So I think the antidote to the fear of man is the fear of the Lord, which a lot of people don't talk about. It, it's you not... Don't. It's not in a lot of conversations about Christianity today, at least in the ones that I'm in. I'm still in Jeremiah 17, though, where it says he is like a shrub in the desert. It doesn't say that he was like he is like a shrub that was planted in the desert. It was a shrub existing in the desert, but the, the tree was planted by the water. It's a very different activity because shrubs in the desert will be constantly sucking for moisture and going as deep as they can in the process of looking for moisture, I think a lot of the times those shrubs end up being very deformed looking. Yeah, they do. Uh, it's an ugly, ugly picture. <laughs> and yeah. and, and it, it'll resonate with people who see the fear of man in their life, either in themselves or in other relationships where, where someone's living or, or relating to them from the fear of man. You'll, you'll see the ugliness of that. It's, it's, it, you feel it. I feel it when I see the fear of man affecting my relationships. So... That's exactly right. Let me quote another author. The fear of man desperately looks left and right and left again, but without ever looking up. Oh, wait, that's you again. That's Marshall (laughs) Siegel. I'm embarrassing myself today. Here I'm thinking I'm I'm quoting some other author, but it's actually you. That's me as well. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that, um, again, that's so, in my experience, one of the tests, I think the section from the article that's coming from, is talking about suffering as a good test. So if you're wondering, is the fear of man, is that something I struggle with? Because when you ask somebody, what's a, what's a sin that you're struggling with? They might say lust or anger or selfishness or laziness. I mean, when is the last time you ever heard someone say, yeah, the, the, the sin that I struggle most with is the fear of man? I can't remember somebody saying it that way. Um, and yet it's all over scripture. There's, there's other verses we haven't talk, touched on yet that, that talk about it as well. So it's a subtle sin, and and one of the ways that I think we can discern it in ourselves is when we're going through trials or suffering. Suffering is a reliable test because the fear of man and the fear of the Lord respond very differently to trials. And you just described, you you read the line that described how the fear of man responds. The fear of man is looking left and right and left and right and never looks up. We're looking to people for confidence, for peace, for vindication. Um, we're looking for praise and approval to quiet our souls. But the fear of man doesn't look for that, all those things from man. It looks, I mean, the fear of the Lord doesn't look for, look for those things from man. It looks for all those things from God. So prayer is a, is a vital sign that we're fearing the Lord and not fearing man. If we're going through difficult times and we're talking a lot to other people, but we're not spending any time in prayer, that, that's probably indicative of a soul that, that is, is, uh, is indulging the fear of man and not pursuing, seeking, working for the fear of the Lord. Um, and that doesn't mean that people aren't vital. So just like every other aspect of the Christian life, God's made the body of Christ so that we serve one another, can help each other see things that we wouldn't see otherwise, can provide encouragement and correction. And so the, the horizontal element is really important. But I just want to make sure that when we're going through those things, trials, sin struggles, that we're not only looking horizontal. And even when we look horizontal, are we really looking horizontal to find help from God through these other people, or are we just trying to get praise and approval? So yeah, 
Um, I think watch yourself as you're walking through difficult situations. Are you just looking all over social media, internet, text conversations, conversations at work or church? Like, are people your source of strength and stability and peace and vindication? Or are you really saying, God, I want you to know my heart. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the paths of righteous, righteousness. Lead me in the, in the way of everlasting life. Are you really looking to God? Do you fear God more than man hmm. in those circumstances? So wise and yet so young. Uh, let me take a little break. Marshall Siegel is my guest. You can go to desiringgod.org to learn more about Marshall. We'll be right back. Marshall Siegel, he's over at DesiringGod.org. We're talking about the fear of man. I think this is uh, resonating with a lot of listeners today, Marshall. Nice job. To God be the glory. Let's talk about uh, the fear of of man. Where does this come from? There's got to be a number of places you can point out. Yeah, and um, I think it's different in different relationships. So it's not going to always look the same depending on what kind of relationship that you're in. Um, The I got married when I was 29 and was doing a fair amount of ministry before I got married. And so what strikes me looking back now is that I didn't, I didn't experience or or see the struggle while I was single. And I think part of that was because I had so much margin in my life that I could largely do whatever anybody asked me to do (laughs) and more Mm -hmm. and still have time for myself, time for the word, time for relaxation, rest, um, so it really was when I got married that I started to see, you know, as, as I had to start to make decisions between making this person happy or making this person happy, making my wife happy, caring for her or, um, pleasing this person at church or in this, this small group or ministry or things like that. that's when, when there I had to start making difficult choices, but between good things to do with various different people at stake, that's where I really started to feel this pressure on my heart. And the reality is it, it, it typically the problem was not with trying to choose between one or the other person, but trying to be free from the fear of man, operating, loving from a fear of the Lord so that I cared for all people well. So I, I experienced it in ministry and the way that I experienced the fear of man there, the or the fruit of it in ministry, I think, is overcommitting, committing to too many things. So you find this, I mean, um, Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and follow him. So the Christian life should be heavy and ministry should be hard and demanding I think, but if we are committing out of a desire to please people rather than from a sense of calling of God and a, a real um, a desire to love, then that's gonna that's gonna prove out over time because we're gonna be stretched thin. And as we're stretched thin, the not the fruit of the spirit, but the opposite of the fruit of the spirit is gonna come out in those ministry contexts. So committing to too much, and then trying to be a savior for other people rather than pointing them to Jesus in ministry. So. Um, so I think it's something to be mindful of in ministry, even in ministry, which is wild to think about that Satan can corrupt even ministry with this fear of man. So ministry, uh, for sure, in marriage, um, I had a real struggle. Uh, I could be undone very easily by even small pushback or correction from my wife 
in the first couple of years. I was very eager for her to feel blessed by me and to think <laughs> that I was a great husband. Mm-hmm. And anything that suggested otherwise was really crippling for me for a while. Um, I was disabused of that really quickly in marriage. But um, yeah, so a- any kind of, of pushback or correction felt uh, it, it just undid me in ways that it, it shouldn't have. And then I was uh, often paralyzed by indecision in marriage too, to make a lot of decisions all the time and you're making them with somebody else. And so there's there's more factors involved. And so I found that I think indecision can be a really good marker of what, uh, or a really good indication of the fear of man in a person's life. And so I saw that in myself as well. Parenting, I now have two kids. And already you can, you can feel the temptation to resist discipline because I want my son, who's turning five this summer, I want him to like me and feel loved by me. And I can tell when I discipline him that, that he doesn't feel loved in the moment. <laughs> and so there can be this mm-hmm. resistance. I don't want to go there because it's, but I know that the Bible tells me, and I tell him all the time, why do we give you Paulos? That's Tagalog for, for uh, a spanking. Uh, my wife's Filipino. And he'll say, because you love me. And, and that's what God says to us, that discipline is for love. And so, um, so in parenting, we, we resist discipline or we spoil a child. We're trying to, to shower them with gifts or, or things that they want so that they respond a certain way to us. And we know, we all see the fruit of this in various relationships. That when we spoil our children, it doesn't produce the kind of maturity and peace and stability that we really want them to have long term. Um, in friendships, it, it can show up in an unwillingness to be vulnerable or an unwillingness to confess sin or an unwillingness to ask for help. Those are three things that I thought of right away in friendships that if, if the people who know you best don't know you very well, that could be an indication of the fear of man. Or if you sin against somebody and you know you sinned against them, but you're unwilling to go and ask uh, for forgiveness, that would be an indication of the fear of man. Or if someone sins against you and you see that sin in there in your brother or sister's life and you're unwilling to go talk to them, that's what we talked about last time I was here was the, the grace of re- a good rebuke. Um, if we're unwilling to, to give a good rebuke, a loving rebuke in the moment, then that can be an indication of the fear of man. And the last one is just thought about lost neighbors. I'm just six minutes down the road here and uh, we pray for our neighbors all the time on, on, uh, on our street. And I think the fear of man shows up there by being shy about Jesus, by being unwilling to share uh, truths, spiritual truths, or ask spiritual questions that might make the conversation uncomfortable. Because we really do care about their souls. We want them to be saved. We want them to know Jesus. We We want to welcome them into the family. And yet in the moment, it can feel intimidating to try to to cross over those bridges or bring up those topics that, that might make them despise us. They, they might literally hate us for the things that we believe about Jesus. And so the fear of man can show up there. So those are some of the categories and areas of my own life that I've, I've uh, wrestled with personally. Do you think when it comes to neighbors that we, neighbors will quickly put people in categories and say, oh, Marshall, he's one of those religious guys? I'm sure people do. Uh, I'm also sure that that fear keeps a lot of Christians from from speaking about yeah. Jesus to their neighbors. And my guess is more neighbors will not do that than will. And yet we think they all will. And so that's why we're resistant. So I think if we're doing what, what Jesus calls us to on our street, we're caring for people and we're looking for needs to meet and we're warm and hospitable and we tell them that all of that's because we love Jesus, I think most people will respect that and not despise it. But but Jesus says, woe to you if all speak well of you. So I think if we're not sharing with enough people that, so that someone takes issue with that, then we're probably not being faithful. So, yeah, I, I want to 
I want to say, regardless of how my neighbors, so I could name them by name right now, who we love, who don't know Jesus, regardless of how they respond, I want to, I want to give them the opportunity to, to meet Jesus and see him and enjoy him and spend eternity with him. I want them to have that opportunity because I'm their neighbor. I think God's put me on that street so that they might have an opportunity to encounter Jesus. Yeah. Interesting as a guy who hosts a radio show that, you know, I, I can't be overly concerned, you know, what people think. You like me, though, don't you? I do. Oh, yeah. good. Well, then, then I'm doing okay. I'm not going to sweat it then. All right. Mar- Marshall Siegel has been my guest, and you can go to desiringgod.org to learn more about his writing. Just type in his name in the search engine, Marshall Siegel, and all of his articles will pop up. And the one we talked about today will be there as well. He's uh, written several on the fear of man. We'll take a little break. When we come back, the um, hour with Peter Kapsner, the mystery hour, will take place just in several minutes. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.